Translate listeners, Ramon, Quark, and I recently paneled a roundtable discussion with Tresa creators and showrunners Budget Tan, Jay Oliva, and Tanya Yuson for the Creative Futures 2021 event organized by Saitem. This episode airs an excerpt of our conversation with Team Tresa, as well as the fun off-the-air, or should I say off-the-event chikahan with Budget, Jay, and Tanya. It's a super fun Enslate exclusives talk, so enjoy! Okay, we have a new guest who just joined us, and I'm super excited. I've never uh, met this oh, man, yeah. <laughs> but oh. I'm very uh, I I admire his work. Um, uh, storyboard artist, um, director, of course, of so many great uh, DC originals, and of course, a showrunner and director of Crescent. Please welcome everybody, Mr. Jay Oliva. Yeah, hey Jay. Sorry, my little Hey, that is a great camera, man. <laughs> like, you, you look so good. I know. In camera blur. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's a director in me. I need to have a nice camera. <laughs> what lessons or insights did you get from adapting something that in a way was pretty much done by two people initially, right, from the comic? Um, well, I mean, I've adapted a lot of uh, comic books and graphic novels in the past. Uh, I mean, I've, I've worked on toys from He-Man to, you know, Winnie the Pooh for Disney and of course, all the DC and Marvel stuff. So I, I've worked on different IPs and how to translate it to, you know, to animation. Um, for this one, I mean, it was a little easy in a sense that like, um, I mean, easy and hard, right? Uh, it was easy because the source material had been out for um, a while. And, uh, and there's a, you know, they've got the huge, um, they've got the huge um, library of, of different novels. I think at the time they had, what, seven, seven different volumes at the time. Um, and, uh, and then what I did was, uh, I read, I read everything I could. I, I, I did a little research and then I tried to like do my best to try to figure out, okay, what, what do I like about the, 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 the comic? Uh, what do I like about the characters? And then, um, of course, talking to Budget and Kajo, I, uh, I, I tried to figure out like, you know, ask the, ask them the, the big questions of like, okay, well, in your mind, what does, uh, Alexander Tresse sound like, or, you know, what, what, like with Kajo, you know, with the artwork, you know, adapting. And so I would then uh, adjust it as, you know, uh, and then with the adaptation and, and try to find something that, that is like, you know, that, that'll, that'll please the fans, but at the same time, um, be something kind of new. So, uh, you know, that, that's where like, it's fun, but it's also a little scary because I, you know, you never know how the fans are going to react. And of course, my biggest, you know, my biggest critics I wanted to make sure I, I pleased was was Budget and Kajo to make sure that they like it. And I'm constantly like, even Kajo, who hadn't seen the show, I, I kept asking him, does it look okay to you? <laughs> you know? And now you know it works because of all the fan art, especially of the... Oh yeah, there's first... a lot of fan art. Yeah. <laughs> Thirst art. <laughs> Erotic I know, oh my fan art. <laughs> Has the reaction online surprised you? Uh, do you have a favorite uh, meme or response that you've seen? Oh, the thing for me was just the overwhelming response from the Philippines and the Filipino fans. Like, uh, they they take their Tresse very seriously. Um, the I think the one thing that I didn't realize until you know. As you start doing the press junkets, I'm seeing more and more, you know, posts is just how like everybody thought like everybody on the show was sexy. Like they were just 
<laughs> and I mean, I'll I'll admit, I mean, I wanted to make the Kambal and 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 uh, you know Alex and of course you know Malixi both versions. I wanted to make sure that you know they they're very good looking models. But the other characters I didn't plan on, like Tapia, I had no, I didn't be, I didn't go out <laughs> trying to make yes. him sexy. Yes. Yes. Uh, or, <laughs> but yeah, he's I mean, got a fan base now. Exactly. It's that so. one moment where he shows up with a shotgun and he's got blood and the <laughs> smirk on his face. Everyone's like, yes, yes. come through. <laughs> um, yeah, so so that I didn't expect. Um, and then it wasn't until they started putting the lineups up of like the different characters. Like, of course, Dominic, you know, for me, um, I remember... That's my song Prince. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So Dominic's in the comic, right? And so yes, I wanted yes. I, I loved his swag in the comic. I thought he was really cool. And so in the in the scenes that we have him in the comic and the kind the animation, I I I wanted him to have like a really unique outfit. I, I basically <sighs> based him on the vampire Lestat, right? I wanted that uh, sexiness of the vampire Lestat. But but his coat, I wanted it to be like Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heartthrob Band, where it's that short kind of coat. But he's not wearing anything underneath. And I remember my, one, uh, one of my character designers, uh, Sarah, she had designed it. And he had a more revolutionary coat, right, with a tail, like a revolutionary. And I was like, no, no, no. I was like, you got to open it up. And, I was, and he had like a, like a little like fluffy pirate shirt underneath. I was like, no, no, lose the shirt. I want to see the, I want to see like the whole abs and everything. And yeah, that's what you see there. And, you know, it just ended up being, because I just thought, you know, for him being the Aswang Prince, I wanted him to be very flamboyant and just like over the top. And like I said, I was playing, I was basing him off of the vampire Lestat. And, uh, and so anyways, I just, when I, when you look at the, the other characters, I realized, oh yeah, I, we did make a lot of really attractive. <laughs> Malixi for one. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we had, you know, uh, you know, we had uh, Manny Jacinto and I was like, okay, I got to make sure. He, and also, you know, that's also could be a possible love interest, right? In the comics, there's definitely a love interest there. So I had to make sure that he was that bad boy that everybody kind of like, <laughs> they love to hate, but hate to love, right? And there, and it's that whole little, little Alexander go for the forbidden fruit, you know? Uh, Jay, I'm already, I'm already getting comments like, oh, Malixi in the anime is so much better than Malixi in the comic book. And they're like comparing characteristics. Yeah. And it's crazy. <laughs> the debates are hilarious sometimes. Yes, no, but you know what? The the fanner interaction of that is what I think is it is something that you know um, a show like this really needs. You know, I think you know it's one thing to have you know good ratings from the critics and you know good ratings you know with people watching it, but I think the fan engagement is where I did not expect it to go this far. Same. You know, Same. I mean, I was seeing I was seeing cosplayers the the night of like of it release and they're dressing up as the Talib Busao and somebody really, and I'm just like yes. how did you guys put together <laughs> from the trailer <laughs> so fast right um and I think that is I think the one thing that like really like stood out to me was just the the overwhelming fan response from the Philippines which, which was really amazing uh, if I may ask a, a more craft specific question right the main difference between the comics and of course, the TV show is is motion, and one of the things that I was curious about were your influences about how you executed the style of the show, not just in terms of the visual look, but in terms of the the camera movement, the mise en scene. Mm -hmm. uh, could you speak to that a bit? I've, I've been really unique in my career. Um, a lot of animation directors tend to. 
um, work on a combination of action adventure and cartoony um, type of uh, animation programs. Uh, just to give you an example, about ninety to ninety ninety to ninety five percent of of animated content in America is all the cartoony, you know, like Adventure Time. It's all that kind of that vein, right? Um, my career has been mostly, for the most part, action adventure from the moment I started to to now, right? So early on, when I when I first started working in animation in the in the mid nineties. You know, of course, we had Batman the Animated Series, but uh, most of the animated programs at the time were still shot kind of like, um, you know, uh, it was almost like sitcom, right? It was like the camera was eye level. Very rarely did you have, you know, dynamic camera moves. But because I, you know, I grew up, I grew up with, you know, uh, Japanese anime, right? I, I, I loved Akira and Ghost in the Shell. I mean, I was, I'm a kid from the 90s, so... A lot of those Japanese anime influenced me. So when I started working, I kept trying to do these things. And my bosses kept saying, no, 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 we don't want that anime stuff. You know, just stick to what the style of the show is. Of course, as things progressed on, you know, it changed and they wanted a little bit more live action feel. And so that's where I was able to really excel because, you know, uh, the way I stage things is very, very live action. I mean, that's why when I started working with Zack Snyder uh, and doing all the Marvel films as well, I just fit in, right? Because the shots that I was doing, the the camera work, you know, it was very live action feel. So, like for this particular project, you know, um, I I already had a, a a background of trying to shoot things very live action. I mean, you know, I think you could probably take our episodes and be able to shoot it in live action, and you pretty much could follow it, you know, exactly, and it would still feel, you know, the same. So, I think that's the one thing that that you know I I wanted to focus on was. Get that live action feel. Get that film noir, you know that 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 was in the comic. You know, get that that you know uh, police procedural. Like I love, you know, I love all the Law and Orders and all of those kind of police procedural, like you know, True Detective and stuff. I love those kind of things. So, being able to put all these kind of fun, kind of different things that that interest me into the kind of the filmmaking and the show, you know, that that that's just went hand to hand. Now, watching the show now, you know, two years after we originally started it. Um, there's a lot of things I would change, <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, oh man, I'm, I'm in my mind. I'm like, man, if, if I get a second season, if we get another, I mean, I, the stuff that I want to do cinematography wise and lighting and everything, uh, I mean, I, I think would, has grown a lot and I'm, I'm, I, I can't wait that if I ever get the opportunity to do that, like, it's going to go crazy. Like I want to basically have, have scenes where like, you're just scared, like really, really scared. Uh, like conjuring scared, right? Like, you know, like when you watch the conjuring, you're just like, man, this is terrifying. Like, you want to turn it off? Um, I'm hoping we can get a chance and, you know, if we do get other episodes where we can explore that a bit more and, and, and kind of really work on, um, you know, the kind of pacing and, and the, uh, the horror aspect of Alexandra's world, which is one thing that I, I wish we just had a little bit more time with. So that's what I would do. I mean, for me, it was a great front seat to watch how Jay and Jojo and all the, you know, the artists work on it. And, I, you know, seeing the show from the beginning stages where they're doing like, you know, the storyboards and then putting it together in animatics. And then when they start doing the backgrounds and the artwork and then finally the animation, like each stage had something fascinating to look at. But there's so much work actually that goes into the series that. Jay explained to me because I thought the lighting, like every frame, like the frame I have, the frame you have, Park, or even in like to say the basement in like episode three, 
it feels different. And I asked Jay once, like, why is that? He's like, because we pay attention to the lighting for each scene. They don't do like a flat lighting for like everything throughout. They actually model it with each scene. And I'm like, that is a lot of work, but that's what comes across. And that's also what makes the series super special. Jay, do you have favorite shots in the series? Oh, um, there's a lot of them. I mean, I think... (laughs) <laughs> I mean, a lot of the shots that I did, I like a lot. Um, but, um, of course. You know, I think, um, you know, like, for example, like, uh, I remember, you know, my publicity guy, Gary, was pulling some some shots to, to kind of share with the, you know, for the different articles. And there's this one shot he pulled of Alexander going into um, into Signor's, uh, Armanaz's, the uh, the tree. Like, he, she's walking yeah. up and, and there's this... this tree yeah. behind her she's it's a it's a shot where it's over the shoulder of her and you see the tree i thought that looked really really great it was all very like kind of cool you know blues um ah you know there's there's so many things that i loved i mean i, I love like the the reveal of the chanak when the the camera you know the light yeah. finds it and it like its head turns around and it screams uh, you know that i thought was pretty cool um you know i, I there's a lot of things of there's a lot of little shots here and there um that that I liked, you know. There's a scene where Malixi's, you know, during the race in episode two, where he's running away from camera, um, just as just as uh, I think the shot is, is that uh, um, Alexandra's car comes away from camera and it, and, it, and it skids to a stop here, and then Malixi comes running in in the shot, mm-hmm. and it really looks great. It looks great. And if you, and originally my and this is a funny story. Originally, my director, uh, one of my directors, David Hartman, he was like, "We should cut this shot." I'm like, "Why?" They're like, "Cause you could see Malixi's butthole." And I'm like, <laughs> I, was, "I was like, but I like that. Keep that in." <laughs> and Slade exclusive. <laughs> and I was just like, "No, leave it." I'm like, that's a good shot. Like, leave it. Uh, but anyways, I mean, there's there's a lot of imagery. I think a lot of the things that I loved. I mean, again, I I would say. One of the imagery that I really love, that I'm glad that I took it, I grabbed it from the book and I put it in, is is the the image of um, it's from I think 13 Stations when all the Aswang are feeding on the people on the tables, right? And it's this kind of a down shot that Kajo had drawn. And I remember when I saw that image, I was like, I have to put this in the movie. I have to put this in the animation somewhere. Um, so I think I think that there's a lot of things that Kajo had done and Budget had done that I was like. Let's just lift that. That looks that's perfect, right? Um, so um, that's kind of where my mindset was, because again, there's there's a ton of really cool stuff. I really like a lot of the balete tree stuff, like where you know mm-hmm. Alex is heading to the balete tree, and even at the end when she's standing in front of it, the very last shot, and also the uh, pagoda shot, right, where the uh, um, yes. capital pagoda, where um, the Chinese vampire is up on the top. So that's, that's, <laughs> that's oh, by the way, that funny story with that is that. Tanya, like, she took us around Kiapo, and I mind you, I'd never been to Kiapo before. Um, we went Much to less walk- walking on it on foot. <laughs> yeah, we did it on foot, right? Uh, we saw the Kiapo River, a very interesting river. Um, and then we, we, we walked, we went to where the uh, pagoda was. And I remember it was so weird because it's like, you know, you see all the different buildings and you come around this corner and there's this Japanese pagoda in the middle. <laughs> like, where, what is this doing here? And I just thought, this is so amazing. And I turned to Tanya. I was like, we have to put, there has to be a reason. We have to put this <laughs> And then, yeah, it made it for the ending. And it was a great kind of set piece to, to set up for the, the last shot. Yeah, because Jay, you've, um, you've adapted so many cool things. Of course, stress, 
Oh, you did such a great job there. But uh, my my favorite book of all time is the, the Dark Knight Returns, mm. um, and you've done so much IP adaptation, uh, Green Lantern, Batman, the Justice League. Um, what would your advice be for other directors, producers, and writers looking to adapt IP? You know, directing IP is a really interesting um, process because here's the thing: is that like if you do it, if you do it one one to the source then um, you run into the problem where um, people are used to it and, and there's nothing to be excited about because they already know, they know the story, right? They know what's going to happen. Um, on the other hand, though, the fans, they want that. They want that. So when I do my adaptations, I try to do a thing where, you know, it's mostly the same, but there's a lot of new stuff. Like, for example, Dark Knight Returns, there's a lot of new scenes I added that reading these key moments of the cases, I was like, okay, this is really cool. Let's, let's make sure we use that. Or, or um, hey, let's take this story point and move it around over here and see if we can connect the dots. And, and I think my, my process is like, it's, it's, a little, it's a little scatterbrained. What I like to do is I, I get everything, I, I put it in front of me and <laughs> I kind of let my brain connect all the threads, you know? Uh, and, then, and then I start playing it in my head. I, I, I actually see it in my head, kind of like mystery science theater. And I play it over and over and over, and and as it starts working, I'll start my I'll I'll, I'll start to feel my heart kind of, you know, race a bit. And because when that happens, I realize that I'm being inspired. And when I come up with something that's inspired, then I know it's a good idea, right? Because a lot of times I'm just like, okay, Batman's fighting a ninja. Okay, well, that's fine. <laughs> what does he do? Like, how do we make that interesting, right? But when I figure something out, I'm like, oh wait, wait, Batman jumps through the car, like into the car and out the car because the car is falling at the same time. Then I'm like, okay, that's a cool idea. Let's let's put that in there. So, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of moments in in Tresse uh, where like you know, like for example, like Hank showing up, you know. Like after knowing that he's gonna go see Nova Aurora, right? When the next time you see him, he's all dressed up in his like you know 1970s like garb, and he's just like and and him spraying you know the cologne, you know that was something that I was just like oh that's a fantastic scene that is just so hilarious it's so fun right and also the, you know the idea that Crispin and Basilio have no clue about how windows you know open in a car that old and they're trying to push it going why isn't this opening you know and I you know that when when those ideas come out you know that that you've hit magic, right? And so um, when, when, we, when you adapt something, you really have to take into account to what you like yourself, but also what the fans like, what they're responding, what they're talking about on the forums or things that they, you know, moments in the comic or in the, in the IP that they, they love a lot. And then, you, and then you try to do that and you do that justice and you, and you take it just a little bit step further or you take it to a different area that they haven't quite seen before or a different angle. And, and, and that way, if the fans who know what, what's coming, they won't, they'll be like, wait, wait, this is different. I didn't see this, you know, uh, uh, to tie up my answer really quick at the end. Uh, of, so uh, what I wanted to do, and I told this to Tanya, by the time you get to the end of episode five, I wanted the fans to be like, where is this going? <laughs> this isn't following the comics, right? Like I wanted, when episode six came about, I wanted them to be like, I don't know how, and then, you know, and then everyone's seen this, seen this show, right? So when we did the, the thing with Cap G, I, that was going to be a big surprise. Like I wanted them to not expect that because you don't expect that happening. But we, we, we wanted to kind of subvert what people's expectations are, right? But what was funny mm -hmm. is, that, mm -hmm. is that the way that I ended the, the, the show, right, which is the Talibusal being trapped, is 
is in the same spirit of what Budget and Kaijo had done, where in the original comic he was being trapped in a com- in a in a in a video game, an, uh, mm. a, a, a massive multiplayer video game. Um, and we even dropped that hint early on when uh, Jobert is talking about Eternos 4.0 or something. Mm. So the fans were falling around, like, "Oh, we know how this is going to end," right. like this, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, what's yeah. funny, what's funny, and this, and I, I credit you know budget to this, is that like he had already established these dragon gates, right? These this way of traveling, and so when Tony and I and the and the writer were thinking about like, okay, now how do we how are we are we gonna do the Eternos thing? Like how do? We, and I was just like, no, the dragon gates, right? Because you know you just fall perpetually, and plus it's it's also uh, I, I don't know if you if you this is where you got some of the inspiration from. It reminded me of the Robert Jordan series, The Wheel of Time. There's this way that they oh. travel, which is in between, like you travel in between these world, uh, in between this, these gates, but if you fall, you fall forever and you, you can't, and you just like, you, you die from, from just falling, 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 not, never hitting anything. And you, you, it's like the, a fate worse than death. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so when I heard, when we were, you know, talking about the dragon gates, and I was like, that's what it is. Because the idea is that the Talibusao, he can't influence anything. He's stuck in these, in these right. dragon, this dragon gate right. and there's no way for him to get out. Right. Yeah. So anyways, that's kind of how we do it. Uh, how I do the adaptations in, in a very convoluted way. <laughs> <laughs> One last question for our three creatives here. Um, what do you think, do you have any advice for Filipino creatives out there who want their IP adapted and any um, any thoughts on the future of of the Philippine creative industry and how we can improve it? It's a two prong question, so just choose any prong that you want. I think my advice would be, you know, artists have to cannot exist in a bubble. They can't just expect to just do the art for their. I mean, you can you can do art um, for yourself if you want. Like you know, definitely that's that's definitely an option. But if your goal is to really want to have it be seen by more people you really have to look at the big picture and see you know but who is the audience you want to connect with who you know how do you want to connect with them because then that informs you know how you want to set how you want to find partners uh to set up your art to either adapt it to another platform or another medium or even just get it out there for the most part so my advice would be Focus on being the best you can be with the content, telling the best story you can. But at the same time, look at the big picture in terms of where the market is, where the industry is, who the people you should be talking to are, whether it's to get information or maybe partner up, uh, because all of that will serve you if your goal is to you know, have it adapted to something else. The simplest, I guess, is if you are a comic book creator, then do you know focus on your craft tell the best story you want to tell um uh start telling your story and then finish telling your story and don't fall into the endless pit of revising it thinking it will become you know i will revise this until this is perfect uh kind of of pitfall right um finish your story and then move on to the next story um, and then, yeah, as far as adaptation is concerned, then a new mindset is needed. A more collaborative, more open mindset is needed. Um, a good dialogue is needed between you and your partners and the people who will adapt it. And you will feel it in your gut if these people you're partnering with understand what your story is all about. And to be not afraid to walk away uh, if you feel like they're not 
understanding what you wanted it to be? Good answer. Uh, okay, I would say, let me, let me jump on this. So I've got a couple of, of uh, things I would want to touch upon. Um, so here's the thing, is that like, as an artist, I'm very lazy, okay? I'm very lazy. Like, I don't like, if I had a choice between drawing and sleeping, I'm choosing sleeping every time. Um, <laughs> yes. and, it's, and, and again, this is where the creative process, you know, kind of runs into how creatives are, right? There are some creatives that are very driven who can be like, I'm going to do one page a day or do this, this, and this, right? Uh, by and large, most artists are scatterbrained. Most creatives are very scatterbrained. A lot, and both artists and writers, uh, which are creatives, um, we, we, we get into you know, creative blocks, right? And we constantly feel like, you know, we suck, right? I mean, not some uh, great terms. We're, we're, you know, I even run into problems where I'm, I run into, into, how to, into walls. Um, but like what Tanya was saying is this, is that just do it, right? Um, in, my, in my storyboard class, I tell my, art, my, my, my students, when I'm storyboarding, I hate everything I draw, right? But what I do is that, you know, I just plow through it as fast as I can because it's easier to go back and look at the shot and realize what's wrong than to just stare at a blank page, right? And so what I tell my students is that you just vomit out your shots. Just, just vomit it out. Get to the end, right? And this is my, my advice is, is just do it, right? Just do it. And even though you may, you, you may feel like it's not the best that you can, just do it because, you know what? Once it's done... Right, you can always go back and revise it. But what what budget was saying, and this is a, my other point, is go on to something else. Right, uh, I work with a lot of writers, a lot of new writers, a lot of a lot of like veteran writers, and a lot of and what I tell the new writers is just like, listen, we're working on this. Just get it done to the point where I'm happy with it. You know what? And let's and let's write like five more scripts. And if and if and if I hear that somebody's interested in that first script. We'll go back and we'll relook at it again and then we'll revise it, right? But the thing is, is that like you'll get better and better as you go along, right? The first thing you draw or the first thing you write, you're going to hate and that's okay, right? But the thing is, is don't fall in love with it to the point where you want to keep revising that same thing over and over. It's best to like, you know, kind of stretch your muscles and, and, and try something else, right? Like, you know... Uh, one of the things I like to do is I read a lot of books. I watch a lot of movies. I, I'm interested in any kind of story. So I'm spending my time a lot, a lot of times, you know, trying to kind of, uh, you know, broaden my kind of the, my writing muscle so that I can understand when I'm talking to writers where they're kind of leading to. Because a lot of times they have A, B, and C stories. And a lot of times I need to help them to make sure that those, those different um, character arcs, story arcs, all kind of wrap up in, in a nice, clean way. And the only way you get that is again, you read a lot of stories, and you you know you you get ideas that way. Like, oh, that reminds me of this thing. Oh, that's kind of cool. I like that. So the one thing that that I recommend is is you know kind of you know when you're out of school, you are the you're only as good as you want to be, right? So for example, like I took, uh, I, for the longest time I was, uh, you know, I was drawing, but I didn't really know too much about writing. So I took the Robert McKee story seminars and genre stuff. I, you know, I, I went to his seminars. I wanted to, to, to be better as a writer. Um, I wanted to be better as an artist. So I would take other classes. So the thing is uh, for all these up and coming creatives, don't be afraid to try to get better, right? You know, like take classes, you know, talk to other writers, 
you know, hone your craft, you know, whether you're an artist or a writer or any kind of creative, get really good at it. Because remember, you're, if you're a professional and you want to get paid for it, you, you're, you have to have your skills to, to, to the highest level as possible. And, and that'll just lead to your longevity, you know, in, in the industry. And, and that's the one thing that, again, like back to my, my point in the beginning is that I'm lazy. I want to sleep. Right? I want to play video games. I want to go hang out with my friends. I want to do all these other things. But the thing is, if you want to be a creative, you have to sacrifice certain things. Um, you know, I, there's a lot of things. I, again, I, I started when I was 19. I spent, I've been working longer than I've, I, I, I've been enjoying life. Right. Uh, but, but, that's, but, that's, but that's the price creatives play, pay is that, you know, you, you, you have to, I, and I say this in my class, I die a little with every storyboard that I do because I put so much of myself into it. I put so much like, you know, I don't just turn it off at 6 PM or 5 PM in the day. Like I'm four in the morning. I'm thinking, Oh, that'd be a cool fight sequence, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, I'm on the train, I'm, you know, I'm getting my car serviced and I'm constantly thinking about, the stories or kind of new things, either on a project that I'm working on currently or something that I, I, I have after that. Um, Jackie Chan carries around a book where he just writes down ideas of just like, hey, it'd be kind of cool doing a fight in a supermarket or, or he, just, he just writes down random things. But when he goes to do his films, a lot of times he'll go back into that book and he'll be like, hey, this is a good idea here. And I can and he he weaves his story around the stunt work or the ideas that he has for the for the, you know, the action. And Mm -hmm. I I believe uh, Miyazaki does the same thing. I think he uh, from what I read, he did that with Kiki's delivery service. He had drawn Kiki and he just didn't know where that went. But then years later, he looked at it again and he started like, wait, I think there's a story here. Right. And I think as a creative you have to kind of open your mind and your time to be to to know that you might be developing multiple multiple storylines at the same time, right? Uh, you might be like, "Hey, I got this story about a unicorn." I, hey, I got this story about this, you know, pr- police procedural, and and oh shoot, I have this other idea about this. Don't be afraid to kind of like jump around a little bit, right? And again, but at some point, pick one that you have the most ideas about finish it and then jump to the other ones right because that again it's all practice the more practice you 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 do the better you get and and my last advice is don't expect to be great right off the get-go right like when i first started i was terrible i was terrible right um but the more you do it the better you're gonna get right i mean when, when when i go over my 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 students work or my storyboard artists work who are younger than me and I'm, I look at the shot and I'm already like, no, do this, this, and this. They look at me like, you know, I just came, I just created magic, right? They're like, how, how, they're like, I, you know, they told me I spent hours staring at this, at this, uh, this drawing, not knowing how to do this. And now you figure it out in two seconds. And I said, well, I've been doing this for a long time. I and mean, when you get to my, when you get, to, when you've done it as long as me, of course, it should take you a few seconds. Thanks, Jay. And we are just joined by, Alexandra Tressa herself. Hi, Liza. Hi, Liza. I'm sorry I came in a bit late. I'm at work right now. <laughs> no worries. Good to see you. I came good in. Good to see you. <laughs> Ramon, maybe you have a question for Liza since she's joining us. Oh, wait. One second. <laughs> he wasn't expecting that. He's on the screen. Yeah. Surprise. 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 Surprise.
Nawin natameme ka doon, Ramon. <laughs> <laughs> that, that part with my questions for lies, I scrolled past na pala. But I guess the, the first one that comes to mind is, what did you find most attractive about the character and most challenging about the experience? What I found most attractive about the character would be the fact that she's a detective. Um, I've always wanted to play a character that's really different from any other character that I've ever portrayed before. And um, I have a fascination with detectives and crimes. Um, like I like to watch true crime and um, other sorts of um, entertainment of that genre. So um, yeah, I guess the story itself, her being a detective and the fact that it's based on mythology, I'm, I'm a huge fan of nonfiction. So Um, yeah, I really, I fell in love with the comics as soon as I read everything. Actually, as soon as I read like the first few pages of the first, um, book, I got, I got so excited. How was your, uh, I guess, relationship or interaction with the, the directors regarding how to sculpt the performance? Well, I only got to meet with, um, Jay once we had a zoom meeting with the producers, um, Miss Tanya and um, with Jay and we kind of went over what they were expecting from me and um, I, I had asked them what they wanted me like my character to sound like I at first I had assumed that they wanted me to sound something like Shay so I did a lot of research and I started watching a lot of her previous projects so I could kind of um, copy her voice but then as as soon as I told them that they told me that they didn't want me to sound anything like her and that, that they wanted me um, to create a character on my own Um, but they did tell me that one of their inspirations would be Batman. So did you start out for saying, um, Kumusta na, no, no? Doing the Batman voice? <laughs> no, yeah. no, but, but I guess, how, how did you build uh, the, the, the character? Your your interpretation of the character lies where... Um, Uh, did did you look at other characters that you felt would be familiar, similar, or, or maybe even your your older uh, characters that you've played? How how did you kind of like sculpt how you would approach Alexandra? So I watched a lot of different animations on Netflix, um, just so I can see like how that um, world works. Like I wanted to get inspiration, not necessarily on how my character would sound, but just like how people come up with these different voices in general. And I also did watch a lot of superhero movies, and I watched a lot of um, voice acting training on YouTube. Okay, last question from me, for from me, Liza. What are your hopes and dreams for Alexandra Tressa moving forward? If you are given a season two, who? What are my hopes and dreams for Alexandra Tressa? I hope. Um, well, for for Alexandra, maybe for myself, I hope to learn more about her backstory. Um, I want to know more about like what happened to her mom, where her siblings are. She has four brothers, and I, we didn't see like we only saw a short glimpse of them when they were at the ballet retreat, but we didn't really get to um, hear about their backstory. So I want to know a little bit more about that. But my hopes and dreams for Alexandra is that she finds, I guess, um, some sort of inner peace within herself because. Um, I can imagine going through like what what she goes through every day, battling out these aswangs, all these creatures that are wreaking havoc in Manila. It could be pretty draining on her, and I just hope that she has like um, some sort of like I said, peace. I, I hope she attains that in the future, and that she can live a more happier, selfish kind of life because she's very selfless. Um, she gives anything and everything to the 
people of Manila and also to the uh, people she loves. And so I feel like she, um, after a while, after giving so much of yourself out, there's nothing left for herself. So yeah, that's my hopes and dreams for her. Thanks so much for joining us, Liza. And guys, this is, um, we're just wrapping up the first part of our panel. Liza, I know you have to go, you're in a shoot, but thanks so much for giving us your time. And um, I guess we'll, we'll just segue to the anatomy of a scene with all our creators. Breakdown this month. Let's just walk back. Hi, sorry, Min. Not the best way to spend your birthday. It's fine. I'd rather be home watching my dramas anyway. Hey, shouldn't we go with the crowd? Look, there's someone up ahead. Nice. All right. So we just saw uh, a clip, which is the first, the very first thing we see in the show, right? The cold open of the first episode. And we start immediately with like pure horror, which is riding the MRT. Um, the reason I wanted to discuss the scene was because it's not from the comic, I understand. And it's something that didn't come also, I understand, from the writers, but from Jay. Is that right? Yeah, it was because I was riding the MRT with Tanya and she mm. told me... So on the first day I landed there with Jojo Aguilar, my art director, uh, Tanya was like, do you want to rest? You know, because she picked us up, it was at 6 a.m. in the morning. And I said, no, we should go see. I want to go sightseeing because I was still wide awake. And uh, we went onto the MRT, like, what was it, noon-ish? What, what yeah. time? Right? It was right when it was getting really busy and we rode all 13 stations. And I think it was right before I got to, there's a tunnel area. I think it was right before that tunnel area. Um, she was telling me a story of how sometimes it breaks down. And I said, so what do you do? Because it, it was at the point where I think the, the, the rails were, it was really raised up. It was pretty high up at that point. And she said, oh, you know, you just get out and you walk. And I thought, you walk? And she's like, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, that must be the scariest thing, just walking down these tracks to the next station. And that's when I realized, okay, this is this is the way to start off where like you know they're walking and like Aswang show up and 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 kill everybody. I love how everybody's just like kind of like calm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this, oh, it's that part of the day. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, well, they, um, <laughs> when they were doing audio, like you know they were trying to fill in the sounds. They're like, so is there an announcement? Can you get like a recording of the announcement when it stops and everyone goes out? I go, there's no announcement. <laughs> You yeah. just, it just opens, it stops, right? it opens. If you're lucky, if it opens, and you get out and you walk. <laughs> to me, again, in the in the states, that's that's crazy, right? Most people would just sit on the train and just wait for like, 
emergency service to come and then escort you off or something, right? Because you know, <laughs> hey, if that happened here, people would be falling off of train tracks all the time and be on the news. He didn't believe me that it really happened until I, a friend of mine, it happened to her and she you know, posted a video on Facebook and I showed him the video. I go, no, this is really, it's a, it's more regular than we'd like, but this is an instance of it. So <laughs> Are you guys aware of the fan reaction to this cold open? That it's, <laughs> it's like, ev- it's everyone's favorite scene in this first episode because it's like Filipino pride. Et cetera. <laughs> yeah. My husband, my husband, when I first played Tressa to him on the big screen, he was like, oh my God, that's Manila. That's Manila. He's like, <laughs> It's a thrill. It's a thrill. It's a really yeah. good choice. I, I think I when it, what, sorry, what it hits is the representation where we are. There's something about being, you know, specifically being in Manila and the lives we lead in Manila that we find funny and maybe not a lot of people will understand who live outside. But seeing that specific thing where you've never seen it before, it's representation. <laughs> like even if it's something that's not efficient. It's still great right. to feel, right? So I think that's yeah. what people are responding to. And I love that, you know, it, it's such an effective introduction to the horror aspect, the scarier aspect of the series. But if you are from the Philippines, the, immediately it's relatable, right? Like, yes, this is, it's, I guess it's Tuesday. It's time for this to, to shut down. And But I, I'm curious also now, like, what were the instructions that you gave to the score composers because it's very effective here or is it just mostly sound design or is that something that the composers do um so what we do is once we have the finished animation we do a spotting uh session where it's myself and the directors um as well as the composer and the sound effects guys and we we call things out so i'll be like so for example this sequence i wanted it all just be natural sounds no score and i wanted to, the score to come in when that revealed the Asma, or you know that there's something wrong, right? Uh, that's why I wanted to set it up where it was by that giant billboard, so that way the lights go, you know, it flickers in different colors, and then you'd see those guys kind of pop on. And but again, it, the, the trying to do as much like real kind of sound. So in fact, um, uh, the sound guy, my, my foley guy, he ended up. I think he he had his parents or his cousins when they went back home to the Philippines, basically just just record just. You know, uh, people, we call them walla, where it's just like sounds of, you know, people like at the mall or whatever. It's just random sounds to just kind of put that. And we sprinkle that in. You, you don't notice it, but if you listen to it, it's actually there. Um, but they, we try to get authentic, try to get the sounds as authentic as we can. Um, so that way it does feel like we're in Manila, right? As opposed to just using some generic sounds. But yes, we, we planned it. Like I wanted to nice. have, it just sounds like a regular day. And then you creep in the soundtrack and, you know, the dread. And then, you know, it goes right into the, uh, the opening title. But what was your uh, initial reaction when you first saw the scene? It's part of the, that's not in the comic book checklist. <laughs> um, you flipping your table. Like, <laughs> Come on. Come on. That's the first one out the gate. Yeah. <laughs> but, 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 I, I, and, but did it make you homesick? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, 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 sick of home. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, uh, again, I, I, while you guys were talking, I was like running through my head like the different opening scenes because that's also how I I treat Trese. That you know, the first uh, the one pages one to three is usually the cold open for a Trese comic book, right? So, so in my head, that's you 
establish the crime and then Trese comes in is the formula. So in my head, I was like trying to run through the other cold opens and I couldn't think of anything that would have had that strong feeling, right? You know, if they started with the White Lady of Balete Drive, I don't think it would have had that same impact, especially since this was used for the trailer. So again, the 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 that that moment of of it breaking down, going down on the tracks, is just something that uh, you know it's something we experience on a too much regular basis, and it's talked about as well. You know, if if if, if, if for the people who don't ride the MRT, we most definitely will hear about it from family and friends. So I think that's what that scene does, and yeah, especially in that. And people are like saying, you know, it's great how they say, I know that spot, you know. Uh, they know that there's a billboard in that exact spot. So so they can, and I think that's the magic of of, of, of Dresse. I mean, whether it's the comic book or um, or the anime, people just can say, can definitely say, I've been there. I know, I know where that is. And that's that's what just transports them immediately into the story by having a quick uh, open like that. Okay, let's Speaking move of, on to the. Uh, yeah. No, let's move Speaking on to the, the next white one. lady. Aha. <laughs> we are now going to show uh, the white lady scene, and what's interesting about this is it's really a straight from the comic scene. Good evening, Captain Guerrero. Hello, Alexandra. Thanks for coming down. I had a feeling you might want to see this. I admit, I was curious when you described this. So, is it the white lady of Balete Drive? Any witnesses, Lieutenant Tapia? No, ma'am. But one of the neighbors positively ID'd the victim as Gina Santos. We checked it, and it turns out she committed suicide in... 1995. Wait, that can't be right. Ancient runes, crudely done. Clearly a ritual sacrifice. The bigger question is who would want to kill a ghost and why? Death is nothing to be afraid of, Alexandra. And cut. <laughs> and scene. <laughs> Somebody just posted a friend of mine forwarded to me because it's a it's a bleeding heart bird, and I think he is like a uh, I think he is sort of like a bio yeah, it's an ornithologist. But I don't think he I think he's just more a casual bird watcher rather than an ornithologist. He's like when Hollywood has an ornithologist. <laughs> But basically, I said, because Jay had said, okay, whatever your references are for your episode, like compile it and send it to us. So I gave him the option. It's either a Maya bird or it's like the bleeding heart. <laughs> like these are the ones for this bird. <laughs> I'm like, thanks, aviary of Greenbelt. <laughs> used to have an aviary. Yes, yes. <laughs> wow. But budget. This is, this was what started the comic off, right? Yeah. Uh, issue one. Um, really strong imagery. So what what set that off? I wanted the first case to really be about the secret origin of the white lady, um, only because we've heard so many versions of her. You know where she came from. Why is she haunting that street? Um, and that she has been around since, I don't know what, the 50s, I guess, or, you know, uh, and every decade seems to have a different version of her. 
Um, so yeah, it was really an attempt to uh, telling why, who is she, and why does she haunt that street? Um, and in the initial uh, drafts of Trece, where uh, Trece was still Anton Trece, NBI investigator, <laughs> and later on, and, uh, Anton Trece, tabloid reporter, um, that was the, the opening scene never changed, right? It was always him coming upon that scene, the white ladies on the street, and he's the one who notices the, the, the circle and the runes. Um, and, uh, and the second scene was him talking to the, to the Nuno. Um, but yeah, so, so going back to that, it's, um, and, and, and I wanted the, the whole uh, introduction of, of Guerrero and Tapia as well, so that you would establish that she's a consultant. So eventually when, it, when it, she became Alexander Trese, it was more of like, I wanted to establish that whole, yeah, Gordon, Batman, uh, Sherlock Holmes, and uh, Lestrade, Lestrade relationship. Yeah. So, so, and again, these are, these are tropes so that the typical comic book reader or detective uh, fan would immediately pick up, this is the relationship they've got, and we can is easily establish that in a few sentences. Um, I have a question for Jay, which is, um, since this was directly from the book, is there a process where you decide like how much are you going to use the angles used by Kajo uh, or to just sort of go your own way if, you, if something occurs to you that you think is more effective? Well, little did I know that Kajo had redrawn the entire book. <laughs> uh, working off of this version, which is the 2008 like, version yes. of the scene, yes. where I didn't even know this was Tapia at first. I'm like, who is that? <laughs> It doesn't look like top here, right? <laughs> so, you barely see Cap G there anyway. Yeah, he does say Cap G. I mean, I knew that was Captain Guerrero, but, you know, I mean, look at Nuno and everything. So um, this was what we were working off of when we, when we did the series. Um, you know, it was one of those things where, I mean, even in, in, in that version of it, like, Kajo had some really interesting angles and some great, like, kind of shots. So it was just a matter of me looking at it and then, picturing again if we in this case we were basically lifting a case directly from the comics so the fans have spent years they have that they have the comic memorized they know every panel so i wanted to do a little bit of callback where you did see some of the same angles right uh, except you know in in this version for example uh tapio is talking about you know hey are you gonna call your friend in and then there's a shot where you're where you see somebody walking in from behind and then they turn around and that's the first shot of uh, that you reveal of alex we did it a little differently where we see them, they do their two, they're, they're, they're talking and then she comes in, you know, in the side and she just like, she's like, you know, by the books, you know, go right into business kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like I said, there, there's a lot of things that we tried to, to, to use what Kajo had done. And then there's some things that were just like, okay, let's, let, let's, let's, let's now shoot it like true crime. Tanya, what were any liberties that you took for these, for this particular scene? Because you had to establish relationships already. And like this is yeah. only like a one-minute sequence. Yeah, it had to be pretty quick. Um, so figuring out like when to come into the scene in terms of their dialogue uh, and when to when to bring her in. Because the, the thing too was uh, the prologue of doing the Manila introduction. Actually, that was like after the fact. So initially, this was going to be the first time we saw Alexandra. And actually... When I first, uh, an earlier draft of the scene had a bit of that buildup coming in, but Jay said, okay, we need to just cut to the chase and go right in there. So 
um, it it's it's a quick introduction, but you basically it sets you off for the flashback, sets you up for the flashback, which is then if you know more into that backstory and the start of that flashback backstory. So even though the, the OG fans would know who she is, and the, for people who are curious, you just wanted to give them a taste of at least the character and then just repeat it more as the episode went along. I'm, I'm really interested in how you decided on the accents, right? Mm. Like, um, I, think, I, think, I think Alexandra has an accent like uh, akin to ours, like when we're talking to each other right now. Right. Um, uh, si Tapia has kind of a, what I call the, the Philippine congressman accent. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then Guerrero has a more Spanish, it's like, it's like a, uh, mm. Manuel Quezon, Quezon's game, that kind mm. of uh, post-Spanish uh, colonial accent. So was there a, a logic behind uh, the choosing of the accents for characters? Um, in, mm. It's more for an overall world because we're set in Manila. Jay and I discussed this in terms of like, we didn't want the English to be just sort of American. Like even if mm. people might consider it neutral, to to have it be American just felt so weird where we speak English. And I said, it's Manila. It's, you know, it's going to be Manila, an urban accent that you'll find. So it might, for the context that you're putting in for the characters, for us who grew up here, there is that difference. But in this world, it's just about the representation of where you are. In a way, the English version is what the international audiences, the majority of them might tune into, although some of them have been going into the Filipino the Filipino language one and then just doing subtitles. Um, but you know, the English is the original one and then the dub is the Filipino, so that you have these two versions. We decided on that one because it was representation. Uh, for you know the Filipinos speaking English, and what we didn't expect, but would also resonate with us afterwards, because a lot of the the talent on the English language version are Filipinos who are maybe you know um, first gen or some are in, immigrants like John John Briones, but like first gen. So the accent that they bring is also tied in with kind of the story of their lives and their families' lives and their friends' lives. So for us, it was just really about making this world even in English, have that flavor of Manila. But the, the repercussions of that became bigger even, so. Yeah, and, and just to go with Tanya, like in the very beginning, I wanted to have that accent just because, you know, I mean, if we're, you know, if you're doing uh, a show set in, uh, in London, you, you expect everybody to have an accent, right? If it's in Moscow, if it's in English, you'd expect it to at least have a Russian accent. And mm. for me, you know, uh, the Filipino accent is something that I think, you know, I don't hear every day other than from my family. So having this in the show and, and keeping it consistent all the way through really meant a lot. And to go with what Tanya was saying, um, you know, my, my cousins who are from Manila, they all have different accents. I have a cousin who speaks in a Jersey accent, but with a Tagalog accent. With, I don't understand how he has that. He grew up in Jersey, right? He just has that. But, but but what's yeah. funny? What's Wait, funny? Sorry, sorry, Jay. You have to explain. Basically, he says he sounds like Andrew Dice Clay. I go. So when he went there, he adapted his accent. He's like, no. Before he moved to the U.S., he already sounded like Andrew Dice Clay. I'm just like, <laughs> what? Yes, yeah, with, 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 with the Tagalog accent, right? I mean, but he was Andrew. Dice, like that is his cadence. His English is everything. Andrew Dice Clay. And <laughs> so if you ever meet my cousin Eddie. You'll you'll know like I like your Jason Andrew Dice Clay. Uh, 
<laughs> but anyways, um, but but anyways, all my cousins all sound kind of differently because they're all from different parts. From the ones who are Manila speak a certain way. The ones from the province, because my family's from Bicol, right? And for example, my father, my mother, and my father are from a town in Bicol. Um, they both grew up there. My father has a little bit more Spanish side, and my mother has more of the Chinese side. Mm. He grew up in the same town, entirely different accents. My dad is more Spanish, which is why, like with Guerrero, when people are saying, like, well, he sounds more Spanish and this and that, I was like, yeah, my dad, that's what my dad sounds like, right? Yeah. But he's, you know, he's born and raised in the Philippines, but because of his background, that's where his, his accent goes to, whereas my mom's is a little bit different, which is, my mom is a very thick accent, so which is why I told Tanya, please don't do that, because I'll just think of my mom, and I don't want... <laughs> yeah, I don't no, want- I... I, and it was really like, it has to be more urban. So I feel like the accents within that you hear, I've heard in Manila in varying degrees, right? So they're not, they're not switching F and P's because that's basically that kind of an accent is you're using the rules of one language into another language. But it has to be clear to a certain way, but the flavor of the accent is there, which I've heard all those accents, whether it's maybe a little bit more neutral or a little bit not as heavy, heavily accented in the, you know, the Filipino spectrum, but it's there. So it's legit. (laughs) For me, I just need to, I wanted to make sure it was there just to add the authenticity. Yeah, we both agreed on that. Yeah, exactly. That you're there. Yeah. I think we can move on to uh, the next scene, which is something that Tanya touched upon. There was a time when magic in the world was a natural part of life. That age has passed. People fear what they don't understand. That's why our family has always been the bridge between mankind and the supernatural. Your father might be the Lacan and protector of the Accords, but I know a few things. When a soul gets lost, we, Babaylan, have the power to help. This scene was of particular interest also because it's it's something that's also not in the comics, but something inspired by Right, so actually, uh, let's let's go with Tanya first. How did you, I guess, come up with this idea, and then what was the significance of it for you, putting it in this particular part of the episode? Um, when we were discussing sort of the uh, the series breakdown during the story summit, Jay brought up a realization that we never really see the mom. Like it's really mm-hmm. about Anton for the rest of it. Um, so this was a time to really just focus on the mom. Uh, so that you could set it up and feel the loss. And we're taking that from like a a small line that Budget put in like book three at the origins where all of a sudden Miranda is not there anymore. Like at eight, basically. The only thing we knew is that at eight, you know, we just, um, Miranda is gone and that had to have left an imprint on young Alexandra. Um, and I think Jay had said like it's probably really traumatic, so it must have been super violent. So we just went off of that and built it, built in it. So the the flashbacks are different from episode one as they are from the rest of the episodes, uh, because we wanted to. You couldn't, you didn't want to really be distracted with sort of like black and white in between, you know, 
the way Jay planned it out, it's like we have the flashbacks, we're easing the audience into it. But really it's a buildup of, of one, the setup of the placement of the tresses with the rest of the world and the supernatural creatures and the supernatural world. But two, it's also what influence did Miranda have as opposed to Anton and contrasting that. And then all of a sudden she's gone. So that also sets you up for, you know, how Alexandra operates as she's growing up with the next set of flashbacks for the next episode. Now, for budget, was this something that you had in mind for the future, fleshing out that sort of backstory, or did you get beaten to the punch? Yes, yes, that's what they, that's what they did, Ramon. Exactly <laughs> what they did. <laughs> um, but I am amazed at how, uh, yeah, that they picked up on that one little clue and have now expanded on it. Um, it was actually mentioned um, uh, briefly in the book, but it was more in uh, stories from the Diabolical. So oh, yes. it was that moment where she uh, tries to discovers that uh, the the uh, another bunch of emissaries, not as pretty and as sexy as the emissary in the show, but a bunch of emissaries have taken uh, a theater in uh, in Manila and have used it as a way to gather the souls of the people who are about to leave. Right. So, and part of the ritual is you get to watch the best moments of your life in that theater. And that's where they, and as a way to appease Trese, they give her a ticket to the last full show and say, you can watch any moment in your life. What would that be? And that was the moment. She was eight years old. And all we say there in the book is that was the last time she was with her mom. So it, it amazes me how they got that. And I knew in the book it had something to do with the Aswan, right? So again, that's something that we haven't expanded on, but you know and you could feel that there is bigger tension between Trese and the Aswang versus all of the other supernatural creatures. Um, so yeah, so, so um, and what? The, the other clue, and I don't know that if that's where you guys picked it up, is that um, Kajo drew that one illustration of Anton with Maria Makili. So, you know, <laughs> so in a way we've already like kind of established that uh, that was like uh, a focal point in terms of, you know, the Trece family's history, that Makiling is an important location for them. So, yeah, exactly. So, again, amazing how they got those little clues and has now become uh, a cornerstone of, uh, of the series. I, I guess I was just wondering if you feel a, a little bit like George R. R. Martin now that you're sort of in a race with <laughs> the show. You know, should it happen that we get another season that, oh, I have to start filling these things in now before they beat me to it. <laughs> that was, that, yeah, I mean, in, in, a, in a way that I kind of feel that. But at the same time, um, I guess what I now need to, what me and Kajo now need to do is to, if, if, if Jay and Tanya subverted the uh, expectations of the of the reader when they watch the show. That's what we need to do now in the book, because <laughs> now everyone's going well in the show. This is what happened. <laughs> so now when they read the book and we say, and this is where you find out what happened to, to Tresa's mom. It you know I can't help but feel well. We need to do a little change compared to what they saw in the show. Uh, so yes, it's going to be a fun uh, race. Is what it's going to be. 
Because that's the fun thing. Like, are you gonna Kirk Manit or or <laughs> as like Kirk Manis? Like, I don't care what you're doing in the show. This is what I'm doing. Yeah. Are you gonna be a Ghostbusters too? It where you know <laughs> Ghostbusters too is obviously very much inspired by the cartoon as well, and, it, and it's actually closer in many uh, uh, ways to the cartoon um, now that that the, the the adaptation has been made, right? So, what, what do you have philosophy on, on that? I will only will find out Quark when I start writing that part. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure you know I can't help. I mean, I'm you know it it um, it'll always be at the back of my mind on like the 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 continuity that is uh, the show. But again, we've seen you know we we've seen so many examples of other uh, comic book stories that have been adapted and then they created a whole new timeline or new characters in that uh, adaptation and somehow they would find a different way to introduce uh, those characters and moments and you know so our, our favorite geeky examples is that uh, 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 Jimmy Olsen and Kryptonite were introduced in the radio play version of Superman and not in mm -hmm. the comic book so but they became such fan favorites and it just made sense that eventually they found a different way to introduce it uh, into the book. So yes, eventually we will see Trese encounter purple kryptonite or something. <laughs> I don't know. Jay, how did you decide on which parts of the stories? Because this isn't the only flashback that we get in Trese the series. How did you decide the placement of each flashback in each episode? Um, it kind of goes back to what I was saying where I, you know, I put everything in front of me. I, I read, I do a lot of research. I try to find common threads that you don't normally see. Um, I think I'd be a really good CSI person. Um, but now to go with kind of what, with, with what um, Tanya and, and Budget was saying, um, for this particular scene, for example, is a good example of this. Um, the, I noticed in the comics that Alexandra had a penchant for violence against the Aswang. Like if you, if you look at whenever she fights the Aswang, like she really gets into it, right? All the other, all the other kind of, you know, supernatural beings, you know, in the mythology, she's either respectful for or, or any different ways. But the Aswang, she really had this kind of like knack for like, I'm, I'm going to take you out, right? And she was very, and then also like pulling out, you know, Bye. right? It was, it was for me very violent. I'm like, there has to be something to that. And so when we were talking about, you know, uh, the Miranda scene and, and what, you know, how does she die and what is it? And remember, I knew that the first episode was gonna was going to be about the Aswang, right? Because I because that was like everybody knows the Aswang, right? Um, so I knew that I wanted to end the the episode with the Chinese re Chinese restaurant scene, right? And I had to set up the fact that that um, there's this backstory with with Alexandra and the the Aswang. There's a reason why, because if you watch that episode, the Kumbal are barely in it. Because th this is the one episode that I wanted to focus on her. It's almost like she's doing the whole investigation and she's going everywhere. And you know, the Kumbal just kind of show up. They're driving her around, but for the most part, they're just you know in the background. Um, because I I knew that with our other episodes we were focusing on you know the other characters and and, and Alexandra kind of takes a little backseat to to the kind of like character arc. Um, so what I what I saw that when I saw that there's this thing with the Aswang and 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 Alexandra, again this is where I read a lot of books I watch a lot of movies and I was like oh she's like Captain Kirk and the Klingons right in Star Trek <laughs> exactly 
right? Where like, she's like, I can't forgive these people, right? Like I, there's something I do not like about them. And no matter what, she has this kind of like, you know, she knows that they're up to some, no good. And, and that was my, my idea is that like, I mean, that was the thing that I was running with was that, you know, the Aswang have a little bit of, you know, she's got a chip on her shoulder uh, against them, right? And even though like with all the other ones, she tries to, you know, be respectful or try to, you know, follow the accords. The Aswang, she's willing to bend the rules, right? <laughs> she's like, I'm going to take your eye. <laughs> you know, like she doesn't do that to like, you know, any of the other guys. It's just the Aswang. Yeah. She relishes in that. So uh, that was kind of a, the kind of idea that when we we approach the, you know, converting what what Kaju and Budget had done to the the, the animated one, uh, we, we we pick and choose, right? And we 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 created things that were like, oh, that that makes sense for this thing, you know. And also, what Tanya had mentioned about, you know, with the mother, that was a big thing because again, you know, strong female, you know, Filipino women is is very it's a it's a story, right? I mean, she our main character is is a you know female, uh, uh, you know, uh, character, and so. I wanted to. I wanted to be like, okay, what about her mom, and what's the loss? And that's why, like, because the rest of the season is all Anton, right? It's all Anton, and I wanted to kind of find out, like, what did that mean to her? Wow. Well, that's actually a great way to move on to the next clip because speaking about uh, Alexandra's chip on her shoulder with regard to Aswang, let's check out the fight scene that that's uh, closing, sort of near the end of the episode. Crispin, who disobeyed your order to wait, couldn't let you have all the fun this time, bossing. It's okay. Oh, and we freed the people in the back. Cover me! And this was the part of the show where I realized uh, my kid cannot watch. Was <laughs> there like the feasting? Okay, like you're feasting it, but this one, nope, you cannot watch the show yet. Part questions for Jay. Yeah, no, you know what? Actually, um, when I first saw the scene, I got emotional. I still get kind of emotional. <laughs> when I, I see the scene. I don't know. Like, what? Like, um, <laughs> 
why do you get emotional? <laughs> I don't know. Because it's like the, the, the first Love time violence. where really it's like, <laughs> see, I'm like tearing up. Um, uh-huh. It's the first time where you see your, your culture, right? Your, your, your mythology and kind of like, and, and you realize that, oh my God, the whole world is, is watching this. And then it's learning about um, Filipino culture, right? Um, and it's so beautifully made, uh, Jay. It's so expertly uh, shot covered etc um just wanted to uh say like uh where, where did this come from like like how did you get started on this particular scene i was taking my cues off of budget and kajo's you know 13 stations um comic where it was the uh chinese restaurant scene which i was like i need to have this in here this is so I mean, I, I love the I love in the comic. It was talking about how they came in the middle of the night and they 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 took they took them from the their rooms and feasted on them. And I was like, wow, that's such a cool like just imagery. And and so you know, in order to set that up, you know, in the episode, we set up the fact that the Aswang have basically been kind of like kidnapping people, right? Uh, uh, where the the kidnappings have actually been more rampant, and and that you find out that the mayor has kind of been working with them. And and in 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 payment, he was he was sending you know people to to, the, to this place for the Aswang to eat. Um, so there's if you notice, there's a little girl there, and she's about eight years old. We wanted we wanted to have that parallel where she sees herself. And 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 one of the things that we added uh, during the records because I wanted so in the original script when when um, when uh, when Alexandra is in the kind of like the little cave and she's hearing. The battle outside originally you were supposed to hear uh, her mom screaming and i was like no 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 no, miranda like she's like she's gangster right she's she's out there killing oswang like she's like and i and but i needed something that you could hear back there and so um i asked i asked tanya like what can we do and that's where the mangung cotton that's where she yeah. came came up with that right and we made this kind of chant almost like the orcs in in lord of the rings where they're and because they would do this when they're in their feeding frenzy and i wanted to kind of tie that in where she heard that as a kid and then now when she's in you know in this uh in this chinese restaurant with zamu and, and these other aswang they start doing the same thing they're, they're, they're hyping themselves up to basically eat because they're gonna you know eat alexandra and that's where we we tied it together, and that's kind of where this is the only time in the series that we really got to kind of stretch that kind of anime feel, um, mostly because the other episodes it's very different, and um, you know we're not like Castlevania where we have these you know big epic fight sequences, at least not yet. But what I wanted to really capture from all the other episodes is really just that film noir, um, you know, tone and and the horror side. So in the future, I'm, I'm hoping that we can get you know a little bit more actiony in it. But this is the only one time that you see in the episode that we really kind of we can really kind of flex and do something really kind of, you know, interesting. How did you decide decide on the level of gore? Like from the zero? <laughs> no, on, honestly, ah! no, well, here's the thing. Here's, here's what's funny is that originally I asked Netflix, like, what's what's the age rating from this, right? Because like, you know, I've worked on, you know, PG-13, I've worked on PG, G, whatever. Like, what is this like? And based on the comic, like, I, I, I was like, this has to skew a lot more older and they said, whatever you want. And I'm like, are you, are you sure? And they're like, whatever you want. And I'm like, oh, and so at the time, Devilman Crybaby had come out. And I was like, can I do Devilman Crybaby? <laughs> sure, okay. So 
my early versions of the the couple of the episodes was really and they were like okay jay you need to pull that back i'm like <laughs> you said they, they were afraid that the filipinos would take offense to the to the amount of you know scariness that i was going and they're like can you and i'm just like but you told me devil man cry baby and that is so like out there like that yeah. is cross the line and keep and you keep going and they were like oh just pull it back and i was like okay that's fine i mean again the way that we had staged it you know, uh, you know, I, I I was able to just tone it down to where we were at, and it, it still worked out fine. But like I said, originally I was gonna really go crazy with it um, because, like I said, they didn't want to offend the Filipino people. And I'm like, do you do realize Filipinos? We don't care about that kind of stuff. Like we, <laughs> but I don't know. But it's like I said. I mean, the end product still was great, and you know, uh, I think Netflix was very supportive of everything that we we wanted to do creatively, and they for the most part, just let us do, you know, what we wanted to make sure we created a product that was true to the IP that Kajo and Budget had done, as well as something that would be perfect on their service, as well as attract new new fans who, you know, don't know about Filipino mythology. In terms of Alex's fighting style, was there research done into, like, yeah. how to fight with a Chris? Yes, yes. So, I mean, here's the thing. Like, if you watch any of my Batman movies, I, I, I integrate so many different martial arts with Batman. I do Jeet Kune Do. I do, um, you know, any number, you know, Muay Thai. We do a lot of different things. For her thing, I want to do a little bit more. Of course, it's, uh, we wanted to go do the Filipino martial arts. You know, there's a moment where she, she breaks up the, breaks the, uh, the, um, broom. the broom yes. and she yeah. does that. Yes. I would have liked to do more Eskrima stuff. I would have loved yeah. to do that. Except, like I said, like, because of what we were doing in the story wise, there wasn't too many ways that I could kind of showcase that, but it is in there. So that's why I wanted to do a nod to the, you know, to the Filipinos. Like, by the way, I do know that, you know, there is a martial arts that they use and they, and as, as we move forward, uh, you know, the idea is that I would, you know, I would, I would kind of lean in on that a lot more. So as, as we, you know, go, go further deeper into who Alexandra Tresse is and, and what, and, and what kind of person she is. What's your process in terms of pacing uh, a fight scene in particular? Because some shots are very quick cuts, and then you have that awesome long slide. Yeah. And then you also do this thing that I really appreciate where you change almost lenses, which, of course, isn't really the case because it's, it's, an, it's all drawn or animated. But there are these extreme foreshortening angles, and I'm sorry if it's too nerdy, but this is stuff I love, especially with like Howard Porter, JLA, you know, those extreme angles like that. And then, yes, so yes. How, do you, how do you storyboard this, I guess, and then figure out, okay, this shot has to be this long or for this scene to, to work? It all begins on the storyboarders. So I had a couple storyboarders help me on this sequence. Uh, you know, um, Ethan Becker is one of the ones who helped me craft this sequence, um, and he's the one who comes up with a lot of crazy ideas. But for me, when I when I do fight choreography, just in general, uh, I think of it like it's it's I'm telling a story, right? The best fight choreographies are the ones that tell a story. There's a beginning, middle, and end. You know, mm -hmm. there's the setup, the middle, the middle area of the fight kind of tells. It tells a story, like what, what, what's, what, are you, what story are you telling? In the case of this fight with Alexandra, right, the idea is that she's protecting somebody, right? So she's, at a, she's already at a handicap. She's trying to protect this girl. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so she can't just normally just go off and, and kill everybody. She has to protect this, uh, this little girl. And so 
that was the, the, the main story is that it was, I call it the football where she has to take it from point A to point B, but all, all these opponents are in her way. And the last opponent mm-hmm. is the most, is the strongest or fastest one. And mm-hmm. so we, we craft that. And, and, and in terms of the shots, what I like to do is I have a mixture of, of um, longer shots that have multiple beats, like fight beats. And then I do shorter shots just to emphasize a certain thing like, you know, somebody getting stabbed in the mouth or a punch in the face or something or punch in the gut. And then you realize that 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 particular you're billboarding that particular action. And when you mix it all together, you get this nice kind of flow to the fight where you again, it's 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 a uh, it's like uh, music. It has to flow really well. Um, a lot of directors or a lot of, um, you know, filmmakers who are more concerned about the, the character side they think that that fighting is like pornography. They're like, ah, you just they just hit each other and then it's over. I'm not in that school. I, for me, I look at it like I'm doing a dance. All right, I'm doing a dance, and and this then this particular dance, they're making contact, but there's a story to the dancers. The, the story with each dancer, each opponent has a story within it, and how we shoot it is the way to kind of really kind of you know pull in the audience and make them feel like they're right there watching the action, and you're. And you're basically motivating the audience to like turn and look and react because, you know, as a filmmaker, I see myself as I'm leading the audience by hand by their hand and saying, okay, here you're going to laugh, here you're going to cry, here you're going to get scared, and here you're going to fall in love. And that's kind of how I, I, I craft, you know, not only just the fight choreography, but the episode itself. Like I play it out in my head. I feel the highs and lows. There's moments where I'm like, okay, there, we have a lot of action. We need something that is a little bit more heart that we can kind of slow things down a bit. And that's kind of how, uh, that's how I am. And it's only because I've done this a long time and I've trained myself to kind of understand the flow of a fight and all of the best fight sequences that I've seen in, you know, in, in Japanese anime, as well as like Hong Kong cinema. I love all the Jackie Chan films and Jet Li and, and some of the, a lot of the other fight sequences that we've seen in cinema. I studied it and I understand how the pacing is. And I try to put that into the work that I do. Uh, last question, I guess um, in the 80s, we were actually an animation powerhouse, right? We would do, you'd watch cartoons like Police Academy or whatever, and, and it would be all Filipino names. Um, and I, I don't know how we stopped being that, but um, how, if, if we were, again, to become a, a, a cartoon capital or um, a nation known for, for, for animation, um, what would it take to get there again? Yeah, I think the, the market, I mean, it's still, the industry is still very thriving over there. I mean, there's quite a few animation studios in Manila. I mean, there's a lot of talented artists over there. Um, you know, I visited a couple of the studios. Um, in terms of the, like, how to, I guess, become another powerhouse, I think what it is is, like, right now, I think Manila is doing a lot of service work, right? I think what they need to do is start doing original IPs that's created there by Filipinos. Um, and, and, and having the Filipinos, again, look, this show has shown that the Philippines is ready to back something that has culturally is Filipino, right? Um, there's no reason why an animation studio or creatives can create something in the Philippines with Filipino animators and Filipino creatives all around and, and, and do that, right? Because here, here's, here's a good kind of um, analogy that I think, uh, or, or example. Um, look at uh, Korean cinema, right? Or, oh, you know, go back 30 years, where was Korean cinema, right? But what happens is that Korean cinema decided, they were like, you know, we're going to put out quality stuff. We're going to and we're going to create our own stories. And fast forward, 
Korean film just wins the Oscar, the Oscar, right? And and that's the thing though is that like I think they have to just make a choice to be like we need to create original stories and back it. We need to for for the audiences to support that, right? And and look at the bigger stage of like okay, how do we market this to America or to other other places in the world as opposed to just being something that you know Filipinos can consume, right? Because again, a good movie is a good movie, right? Some of the best movies out there have a universal appeal. And this shows that, you know what, people will watch it if it's good. It doesn't have to necessarily be a particular thing saying like, oh, it has to, we can't have, we can't, you know, it, we can't be in Tagalog or we can't do this and that. It, this, this show is a good example of, you know what, you can create it. If it's great, the world will, will embrace it, right? And I think that's kind of where the key is, is like, um, I think animation studios there should just focus. I mean, here's the thing. Uh, Doing service work is great because it pays the bills, right? I mean, I do service work. I, I got to pay the bills. But at the same time, I also have original ideas that I'm also, you know, developing and I'm, I'm pitching as well. And I think that's what they need to do is start developing something that's very Filipino, very, you know, I mean, I'd love to see a Darna. That would be cool. Or, or any other kind of, you know, stories that are uniquely from Filipino creatives about the story. There's such a rich story and history that you guys have there. I think it should just those those students should just focus on on trying to do those kind of things, right? For us, uh, going with off of what Jay said, because he he definitely knows the industry, you know, in and out globally. Uh, the other part is really developing the audience to have that appetite to go see, you know, the quality content that that we're talking about. You know, right now it's figuring out how do you make voices, um, different voices. Um, accessible to the audience or of interest to them so that they're going to want to pay to see it. So it's creating that healthy ecosystem of market and product coming to market, meaning films or series, you know, stories uh, going for distribution in either theater, which helps evaluate and add value to product that we're trying to sell to platforms like, you know, Netflix or, or you know, Disney Plus when it comes in or Amazon. Um, theatrical is the theatrical market is still something that's important for us to build uh, for for the other stories to to um, have value on the platforms. I guess from an indie creator standpoint, uh, you know we are at this point in time when uh, tools and platforms are easily accessible, right? So for an animator. Um, you you have you, you're you're on YouTube. You can create a series on TikTok for all we know, right? And be able to reach an audience that was not available to us back in the '80s. So you know that could be a starting point, no matter how crude it might be. Then you know we the the Pinoy animator and storyteller already has all of these platforms. And, and let that be the starting point uh, of telling the story that they've always wanted to tell. And eventually, um, yeah, then, then that's how they uh, create an audience, a following, which then just gives, um, you know, bigger producers or platforms like Netflix to be able to spot them and see, okay, maybe we can, you know, how else can we this already has a good following and we know they can tell a good story. How can we, what happens when we give them this bigger platform? What kind of stories can they tell? 
Um, so, so yeah, it's it's something you know. I I wish we had <laughs> back in the '90s, but now everyone has this opportunity and venue to to do that. Come on, this is your chance to ask Jay your Snyder specific questions. <laughs> oh, really? I was just wondering how you've been long... salivating. Go. Twilight. How far along are we on Twilight of the Gods? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we're we're in pre-production, so we're about three. Four, uh, I've handed out four episodes, so four episodes are in storyboards right now. Okay, and that is that's expected. Uh, it's expected next year, right? Oh, it might be like twenty twenty three because it's it oh. takes about a year and a half to okay. well, like. So, for example, like Tresse, I started in two thousand nineteen January, and I finished in January of this year. So it took about one year. Yeah. Was, yeah <clears throat> That one, it was a longer schedule because I had right. a very small crew. But this one uh, will be done with pre-production probably by the end of the year. And then it'll be animating for another year. So probably 2023. But, you know, we'll have Army of the Dead. It'll come out next year because that one, Army of the Dead. Right. In, the prequel. Yeah, Army of the Dead's in post-production right now. Uh, we're, we're already getting animation, wow. editing and everything. So, But when Netflix orders Tressa season two and then it's like 12 episodes... <laughs> will that still take the same one year, or will will that just mean you have more sub directors no, that no, you will ideally, have to supervise? Ideally, I mean, if Netflix isn't here, I mean, ideally is um, uh, I'd like them to order, give us the same order as Castlevania, which is I think thirty two episodes that they have. So yeah. if they give us a twenty plus order, then Tanya and I are going to go nuts because we have crazy plans what we want to do. But yeah. what we would do is we would we would we would do it in like. Uh, episode blocks of um, either six or eight, probably eight. Right. And that way, what we'll, they'll do is we'll do, we'll, we'll still go full on past eight and go into, you know, all the other episodes, but Netflix will release it, you know, next season. In seasons, so. yeah. yeah. Eight. More time to work on it. Yeah. Yeah. We were hoping yeah. that we'd get like, you know, for example, like if we get another season, we'll try to do seven. So that way the first six and the seven will make become 13. 13. Right. Right. And <laughs> That way we can kind of like, okay, here's this. And then yeah, after yeah. that, it'll probably be in like eights or um, sixes or eights, depending on what, you know, the orders after that. Nice. Yeah. And Slate will talk to Netflix. So let's... <laughs> I'm already talking to a person from Netflix, Hello. right? Yeah, no, I, the content person from Netflix US is like, it's stickier than, than much stickier than the average Netflix show. So uh, uh, that, that's what they, that's what they, that's what they count on more than um, like, yeah. like high ratings off the bat. It's retention, eh, diba? Not, not, ano, not necessary ratings. It's people staying on the platform. That they oh, I thought you meant sticky by like thirst tweets and all those porn dogs. <laughs> on that's that's oh part God. of it, diba? That's because part of the part of it because Pinoy's are also the number one Pornhub users in terms of, ano, diba? <laughs> staying on Pornhub. So parang, that's part of it. The, the mala, it's called it's sticky, the connections sticky for a reason. Malagkip. <laughs> almost. Yeah. Although one of the things, one of the things I didn't, that I was, I thought you guys might might bring up are all the Easter eggs that we put in the, uh, the yeah. show. There's a lot of things. We have that, a lot of Easter eggs. Easter eggs that are you know, for the comic as well as future seasons of what we were planning, and it's all it's all sprinkled out in every episode. But I haven't seen people f- catch it in. Uh, no, I think no, it's going to be like hindsight. It. Hindsight. Yeah. I mean, we talked lot. about it in the last podcast. Well, we talked about Tanya being in a prison cell. And oh, the cameos. Yeah, the cameos. Budget <laughs> being a corpse. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. 
I'm I'm in there too. I'm one of the zombies. I get Yeah, you have to look for him in episode four. Him, Jojo, okay. David Hartman. You look at the zombies, that's all Lex and Otis people. Yeah, you'll you'll <laughs> see there's, there's like two white people. And you're like, where are those white people from? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're tourists. Well, They're um, correct. <laughs> yeah, you know what I realize? I realize that no one has asked Jay about the opening credits, which I love and I don't yeah. know. How you guys boarded that? But was it very? Did you have True Detective in mind when you when you guys did that? Uh, yeah, I mean the the music that that song was the first thing ever produced by the Kiners. Um, yeah, for the series. Yeah, they they were oh. like, "What about this?" And they they play they played it for me, and I was like, "That's perfect." I was like, "It was just like boom," and I already knew that that was going to be the the main title sequence. So when we were trying to figure out like the look of it, I mean, luckily Netflix kind of helped us out and had we used one of their agencies to kind of do it because by the time they wanted an opening title sequence we were done with production i yeah my, most we were of my wrapped on right and we didn't have time and so uh netflix was like hey use our you know our one particular agency that we use a lot and so i worked with those guys they they i mean to their credit they did probably six or seven versions of that and i kept saying oh no, that's cool. I don't like that. And like, so, I, so one of the things I fought for was that there's a shot of C, of, of the knife, right, of Sinag, and you see the reflections, like it's yeah. like someone the film is, yeah. is flashing on it because that's very '80s. I love that. Like, it's, it's yeah. very, uh, anime. Like, yeah, and I was and I and they kept wanting to cut that. And I was like, no, <laughs> <laughs> keep it. Find a way to make it work because I want that in that shot, you know. And uh, yeah, so. Um, but yeah, so it's it great that, uh, that Jay asked for comic book art to be yeah. included in that. Oh, yeah. 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 Awesome, yeah, so it goes from animated to a lot of the comic art. Like, there's the uh, you see the MSR where her mouth is open in the. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. yes. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that we intermixed in there. Um, uh, yeah, and it was great. It was a nice callback to. The, and also, it was all black and white with red, you know, like we were trying to yeah. get, right, yeah. get that feel. Yes. Yeah. So it was good. I mean, that's that's kind of the the story behind that opening title was that um, it 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 all came together. But it was one of the last things we did at the stu- you know as a studio because at that point we were really done. We did that in post. All right. And, uh, I, I wanted to mention earlier about the the fight scenes, Jay. That you know, uh, friends of mine who who think they're martial arts experts or you know they practice. <laughs> They do it in the weekend, stuff like that. So they really like the fight scenes. That's good. Uh, and they were talking about how, you know, even the yeah, the, the movements or something that they were they could spot, you know, what kind of movement it was. And then of course they, they start saying, Oh, I wouldn't have done that if I was attacked that way. So, <laughs> yeah, but uh, when when does an aswang attack you? you exactly. Know, so. yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> And you need Sinag, like you can't just like yeah. send them off. Like you need Sinag. <laughs> And then I don't know if you guys no, noticed no. this, but like if you take all the cold opens from episodes two to six and edit them together, oh. they make their own episode. Yeah, it's the all black and white make yeah. it so make their yeah. own episode. You watch them all just together and actually release the Oliva cut. Release it. <laughs> Here no, we go. The Oliva cut's gonna be the Devil Man Crybaby version. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, soda. No, it's perfect because I was I was watching Invincible before Tressa came out, and I was like, okay, so this is this is how gory it's gonna get. <laughs> we, no, we were gonna go crazier than that. So yeah. wow, wait. So there's a shot of Petra where you see Petra and you see that her stomach was ripped open and her yeah, entrails are all out. Are like spilled out. Yeah. We had oh. to cut around it because Netflix was like, can you not? 
show as much. So you, we just you just see flashes because originally you see all of it, and then in the uh, in the train. It was like it looked like a slaughterhouse. Like there was. So much Can you blood. lessen the blood? Yeah, and they're like, "Can you like lessen the blood a bit?" And then like, uh, nobody's getting killed. And then the other thing I was thinking, uh, I can Netflix remember. people don't ride the MRT. That's how it looks. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Just be glad it's blood this time. That's something. Yeah. Else. Right. Uh, and then the other thing that they gave us a note on was um, how many times Nova stabbed the baby. Yeah. They're like, "Can you?" <laughs> So instead of 16 times, we do it 13 times or something like that. Like it's, you know, it's just to that point of being uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It had to be right. violent. It had yeah. to be at the top because of, you know. Because that's the shock value. And you it has to be upsetting, moment. but right before I vomit. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> There's a degree to it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so like yeah. again, future seasons. I think I wanted to. Oh, I told this to Tanya in budget before. I was like, I'd like, I love to lean even more so on the horror side and just kind of, you know, um, and the thirst. Yes, the, well, thirst. the thirst is the thirst is gonna be there regardless because clearly, if you're gonna uh, come up with sexy Nuno, like apparently nothing, gonna, yeah, <laughs> nothing is off limits. Wait, the they have a sexy Nuno. Budget, are you hearing yeah. this? I, I'll send this you sexy Nuno. Wait, wait, wait. I'll send oh, you sexy no. Nuno. Hold on. I found sexy Nuno. I don't think yeah, the chat. I don't think yeah, budget yeah. envision that. Oh no, it's on my phone. Would be would would uh, be would would be into would be into the the same realm of as a, as a CW cast right where the whole cast is. Like, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Everyone needs to yeah. be beautiful. If the Powerpuff Girls can do it, why can't Tress it? <laughs> oh gosh. I gotta check sexy Nuno. I'm like, it's not that sexy, but okay, fine. Sexy Nuno. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, they... They <laughs> they just stuck Dominic's abs on like yes. Nuno. It's pretty much... And he's got a short shirt. Oh, my God. Shirt. He's got a short shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Where's sexy Wait, sorry, sorry. Tigbalang? <laughs> is that... Is that yeah, a, it, it, no, if you look at... Is that a toothpick? Ah, that's chocnut. Chocnut, chocnut. Gray chocnut. You look at our design of Malixi, like we made him pretty he's a beautiful tikbalang, right? And also he's the only <laughs> he's the only one and I noticed it in the comic, he's the only one that runs around naked because all the other ones wear clothes, but he's just like, I'm free balling this, right? And, and so the whole yeah. time. So my version of it, I call it the My Little Pony where he's just so beautiful. Like he's just like <laughs> <laughs> My little brony. Brony. Yeah, he's a brony because there's a shot where like he's standing in episode two and he's you know he's he's mad and he's breathing hard and Tresse's there and this shot and he's there and you're looking at him, I'm like that's a good looking horse man <laughs> <laughs> yeah but Jay Ramon is unearthing discussions on Malixi's member size so that's how thirsty yeah. you know there's the saddle up crowd yes <laughs> the saddle up crowd and then, and then you brought up the buttholes. <laughs> I know. Came full circle, yeah. yeah exactly. That's my favorite Easter egg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that will be a meme soon enough. Like guys, it's it's exclusive. I was in an exhibition, and my and my director Dave was like, "We should cut that." And I'm like, "Why?" I was like, "Look, it's beautiful." <laughs> <laughs> There's a dingleberry and everything. Yeah, it's like it's right. Like, <laughs> let's keep it. I've spoken. I put my foot down. I'm we need that. we need the anal representation. <laughs> What's funny is that Malixi doesn't have a horse. I mean, doesn't have a tail. Like the the Tikbalang don't have tails. Or at least mm. we don't have them with tails. 
So like they have, you know, this long flowing head of hair that covers yeah. their back and, and of course their kind of, you know, extremities, but they don't have back. There's no tail back there. So, you know, like I said, we designed it like, <laughs> I guess we're going to see his butthole. And sure enough, you see it. It's, it's... <laughs> Somebody put it in there to be anatomically correct. Yeah. Yes, yeah. No hoping... tail, just a wink. Correct. Well, I'm, hoping... <laughs> I'm hoping they make like a doll of that or, uh, you know. Oh, my. <laughs> oh, God. What kind of What kind what of, kind of doll? Kind <laughs> <laughs> of little pony. Yeah. Little, little best-selling merchandise, I can say. Oh, my God. Oh, man. <laughs> Sexy My Little Pony. That's hilarious. My Little Maliksi. Anatomically correct, My Not-So-Little Maliksi. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, I think that's the best merchandise. I was thinking Kambal masks would be the best-selling, but no, yeah. My Maliksi doll. <laughs> no, it's gonna have to be like those huggable. I mean, look at all the, the huggable pillows, you know, those husband pillows or whatever. But like, yeah, like yeah, yeah. Although, Tanya, no, I haven't seen sexy Jobert though. No one's done Jobert. Yeah, no one's done sexy Jobert. <laughs> no one is shipping Jobert. No one is thirsting for Jobert. Yeah. It's Tapia. It's that one frame of Tapia that did it for everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think season two calls for uh, the twins to be shirtless this time. Yes. <laughs> they're in a sandal already well, it's almost well, there well here's here's a little side thing that Tanya keeps uh, we were, it was a joke with us but, uh, but don't tell anybody but you guys you'll know this so we had this side story that Tapia was really in love with Guerrero and <laughs> and and if you watch the show because here's the thing our, the English the English uh, uh, actor uh, who's doing the, vo- the voice cast like he had this really tough man you know <laughs> And I was like, no, no, no. And I, so I told him the story. I was like, listen, you're in love with Captain Guerrero, but you, you, you it's, it's an unrequited love, right? And as soon as he heard that, that's how the voice came about. He, and, that's, and that's the top of your voice on the English one. So, He's like, I got it. Okay. Yeah, I got it. And that's that, right? And so when you watch the show, Tapia is always doting on and Guerrero and Guerrero's. <laughs> so if you watch it again with that, watch it. We put little nuances in there where you you we, we put it. In. It's like when Guerrero said, like in especially in episode four, like something some, something decisive. Like you hear Tapia's heart flutter a little bit. Yes. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad they caught they caught the thing where Guerrero comes in and Tapia's playing solitaire on the yeah. computer. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, that was so cool. <laughs> They that was the it. most accurate police footage I've seen. Yeah. <laughs> so when we were walking around Kiapo, there's a little substation, like a one-room one, like when you walk the pathway to get to the, the, the Ocampo Pagoda. Right. So I was like, okay, it's like this, but a little bit bigger. <laughs> <It's just> uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the Tapia shipping Guerrero is, uh, is a thing that uh, no one's caught yet, but, but it's in there. Yeah. It's in there. It's very subtle. <laughs> I mean, why else would he risk his life to come back, you know, and kill the yeah, zombies? It's yeah. for Guerrero. It was all for Cap G. Correct. It's for Cap G. No, wait, and it's, then we'll... it's gonna be like Top Gun, where if you close your eyes, it's like they're making. <laughs> <laughs> you just have to change the score a bit, and it'll be there. And yeah. I'm sure yeah. some. Yeah, Twitter they haven't done that, that, like you know, like a Whitney Houston and I will always love you, yeah. <laughs> like Tapia shows up. <laughs> oh, we'll we'll do that. So in second season, we'll have the moment when Tapia and Guerrero for, meet for the first time. When Tapia gets <laughs> transferred to Guerrero's, to you know, <laughs> and 
and they meet and there's this moment, you know, and remember it's a younger Guerrero. Well, it's a little bit younger, but <laughs> <laughs> but that'll be the bodyguard. We'll be here, we'll be here, Whitney Houston song coming on. And- no. <laughs> so, so, soft, so soft focus, slow zoom. Yes. yes. So the same, the actor that voices uh, Cap G, Matt Yanking, also voices Dominic. Yeah. <laughs> the Swang. Yeah. Oh. Well, he's ready. All right, guys. I think this okay, wraps it Thank up. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank Bye. you so much, Jay. Thanks. I know it's like midnight now. Thank yeah. you, Tanya. You're welcome. Tanya. No worries. Good morning, budget. budget. Thank you. Yeah. Good start to your day, budget. <laughs> yes, yes. Now I'm, I don't need coffee anymore. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> He's going to think about uh, Malixi's butthole. That's why. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm going to do after this. I'm going to watch, rewatch episodes. Scrub it. Scrub it in the back. Where's that butthole? <laughs> On your wallpaper. Where is this? I swear, please release the Oliva cut, please. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.